If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, we have some uh, right here on this table. Um, so you can uh, hop up and grab one of those if you need it. Again, I'd like to welcome each of you. My name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here at Restoration. And this is typically what we do when we're together. We pick a book of the Bible and we go through it from the first chapter and the first verse to the last chapter and the last verse. So that we as a body and you individually are shaped by the whole counsel of God. And so that's our aim and that's our goal when we're together. And so tonight is actually our third week in Philippians. And so the first week we did uh, kind of a background, the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of the letter being written in the first place. And then, um, well, however many weeks ago that was, the weekend before the hurricane, we covered the first 11 verses of Philippians. And so tonight we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. The verses that we're going to cover tonight are, they feel, at least for me, uh, tailor-made to the current situation in our city because Paul, writing to the Philippians from jail, is going to redirect their focus from less-than-ideal circumstances to help them see and rejoice in the fact that God and his gospel cannot be stopped, that there's nothing that will ever be able to slow down or impede the message of Jesus dying in our place going forward. And so I think for us, with where we are as a city, with the conversations maybe you've already had or you're going to have in the coming weeks with people who have questions about how God could allow this to happen or why would God allow this to happen, I think tonight in these few moments we have together looking at these verses, it will help us better understand how to lovingly direct people to rejoicing in Christ and to rejoicing in the gospel. And so that's our aim together tonight. Let me say a quick word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful tonight to be able to gather as your people to hear your word, to sing the truths of the gospel, to respond later by coming to the table for the Lord's Supper. And so... Father, would you, in your goodness, help us see from Paul's words to the Philippian believers, would you help us see how even here now in a city that is picking itself up after devastation, would you help us to see how we could encourage each other to look to the ongoing work that God is doing, Father, that you're doing to spread your gospel, and would we help others who have questions, would we help them to see the good news of the gospel. Of all the things we're going to help put back together, of all the relief we're going to provide, as the church, we are commanded and commissioned to share the gospel that brings relief from our sins, that brings freedom, that brings a rebuilding of a new life. And so, Father, we not only serve with our hands, we not only serve with our ears by listening, Father, we serve others by being faithful to speak the truth of the gospel so that Christ would be honored in all things. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul closes out the 11, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul prays a prayer for the Philippians. And then he immediately moves in 12 through 18 to redirecting their gaze to rejoicing in the ongoing spread of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest, I'm not writing a letter out of prison to friends and loved ones with encouragement for them about what God is doing to spread his gospel if I'm ever in that position more than likely. I mean, I'm going to write about what I'm experiencing, how I'm feeling, what the food is like, what the weather is like. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going, man, look at all the ways that God is still advancing the gospel. My focus, if I'm being honest, would be primarily on myself. But Paul's words here are, are shocking because they're not primarily focused on himself. They're not primarily Paul entering into an elongated speech about a woe is him mindset. Paul's focus, first and foremost, was on the gospel and on the unchanging truth of what God had done through Christ to bring sinners and rebels into his family through the shed blood of Jesus. And that was what allowed Paul to make sense of even being in prison in the first place. That's what allowed Paul to endure all that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And never once, from what he at least has written, waver in his belief that God was good and God was working everything out towards his perfect end. And so Paul works to redirect the Philippians' focus to the spread of the gospel. Paul doesn't want the Philippians. Remember, if you were here a month ago, it feels like, if you were here then, we talked about how Paul wrote this letter because the Philippians were losing faith in their own ability to maintain their Christian witness. And Paul is writing to redirect their gaze away from what they are able to do in their own strength and point them to what God has been doing even before they felt this way about themselves, even before and after Paul's in prison and while Paul is still in prison. Paul wants them to see that the gospel has continued to spread in an increasingly hostile environment. And Paul rejoices and wants them to look and rejoice by highlighting the following three things. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul rejoices that his imprisonment, which should have been a cause for hindering his gospel work, has actually resulted in the whole palace guard, and depending on the estimates you read, it could have been, could have been as many as 9,000 soldiers heard either first or second hand about this Jesus who was the reason for Paul's imprisonment. 
one man in house arrest in Rome understood the vitality and the need for the gospel so that he could say while sitting in jail, not woe is me, but what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And there may have been as many as 9,000 men exposed to the truth of Christ, either first or second hand, while Paul was in prison. Paul also rejoices in how other believers have been encouraged by his boldness. He says this in 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We don't know here if Paul's referring to anyone in the Philippian church. What Paul seems to be indicating is that his own boldness to not cower and to not stop speaking the word of God faithfully while he's in prison has caused others to begin to understand and see the eternal beauty and truth and worth of the gospel where they begin to share it with an ever-decreasing fear of what may happen to them for the proclamation of the gospel. They lived in a time and they were in an environment that was becoming increasingly hostile by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year. There was every incentive for them to just be a little more quiet, to just let the storm of persecution pass and then take up sharing the gospel. But what Paul knew and why Paul told it to every prison guard that came his way and why these other brothers shared it with an ever-decreasing fear with what, of what would happen to them is because here's what they knew. They could wait for the storm of persecution and the threat of harm to pass. But if they did not open their mouth and if they did not share the gospel, there would be those who would die without the chance to hear that their sins could be forgiven through Christ. They shared because they believed that there really were two places that all of human, humankind will spend eternity, either in heaven through the forgiveness that is ours in Christ or separated from God in hell. The only way you're going to keep opening your mouth to share with Roman guards or become or grow to a level of ever-decreasing fear of what may happen to you, is if you're sure that your eternity is set for heaven and you then move forward to say everyone needs to hear to have an opportunity to respond to the good news of the gospel. And so Paul rejoices that he's had a chance to share and the other brothers and sisters around the Roman Empire are growing more bold every day to share the truth of the gospel. And then third, and perhaps most shocking, is this. Paul rejoices that those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, seeking to add weight and misery to the chains he is already in, are at least preaching the true gospel. If you want to know how Paul feels about heretical teaching of the gospel, flip back and read Galatians. In harsh, direct language, Paul denounces those who would teach any gospel other than the truth of our sinfulness and Christ's work on our behalf in coming as the 
perfect son of God who was fully God and fully man, living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved, satisfying the judgment and the wrath of God on the cross, and then rising from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and the devil, walking out holding the keys to death and hell in his hand, and offering forgiveness for all those who would trust and believe in that message. Paul cared that you got all those parts right. If you got them wrong, Paul would come after you with wit and with the determination to help everyone see the true gospel. And so when Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice, Paul doesn't view these who are making his life more difficult as heretics and those outside the family. He views them more as men who are preaching from poorly motivated hearts. And their attitude towards Paul is less than ideal as a fellow brother in the family of God. But Paul rejoices because even God can use their faithful testimony to Christ to bring others to faith. And so I want, this one was the one that I really didn't want to put on here because I didn't want to have to tell you all about it because I didn't want to have to deal with it in my own life. But here we are, so let's just deal with it. Who are the people that are other believers that you just don't rejoice when they do well in ministry? Because we've got it. We're no better than the guys who were preaching against Paul. We can share the gospel faithfully. We can be faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus and we can have a heart attitude towards other believers that while it does not change the truth that we are proclaiming, does not change the life, the lives that are saved through the power of the spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. There is something that happens to the heart of a believer when the gospel is proclaimed and the heart is held in a position of envy and resentment of other believers who are faithfully sharing the gospel as well. This is a hard thing to wrestle with because I don't, look, there are people I know who faithfully share the gospel and I struggle to rejoice in the ministry that they're doing. And I can spiritualize it for you. I can tell you I don't like certain doctrinal or theological positions that they hold that are all secondary issues that don't pertain to the truth of the gospel. I can nitpick their style or their methodology of ministry to death. And I rob myself, and we rob ourselves as a church body, of the joy that should come from anyone who hears and responds and believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to wrestle with these things because this is what Paul's doing. He's redirecting the Philippian believers' view away from themselves and towards the ongoing spread of the gospel through his imprisonment, through the boldness of others, and even through those who preach from a position of envy and rivalry. God help it not be us who can only ever gather and rejoice in the gospel from a position of envy and rivalry. 
Paul highlights these areas to remind the Philippian believers, like he had done just earlier in chapter 1, that they are indeed partakers with Paul of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They can keep pressing on, not losing faith in their Christian witness, because there is nothing that will ultimately stop the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Moises Silva in his commentary points out, the gospel had continued to make progress, not merely in spite of adversity, Rather, the adversity itself had turned out for the advancement of the gospel. The great 20th century theologian Billy Joel wrote a song called Only the Good Die Young. And near the end of the song, he has this in a verse chorus. I don't do music, so it's whatever. But this is what he says in the song. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And if you know the song, oh, only the, I won't sing, but. Can we be, uh, if we take what Paul's written in 12 through 18, and we lay it over against what Billy Joel wrote and rode to untold amounts of money, this worldview that he writes about in Only the Good Die Young is prevalent everywhere. And even in the church. So that we wouldn't look at imprisonment or any type of hardship that would come our way as a grounds for advancing the gospel. We would use it as an excuse to bail on the gospel and on the church and on our faith. We would rather trade crying with the saints to laugh with the sinners when this really gets hard. And we really struggle to believe that heaven is better. Some say it's better. I say it ain't. This is so prevalent that I believe Paul would have a hard time understanding how most of us now in our world today approach suffering in our life. Paul's life and the rest of Scripture testify to this truth, that we saints who cry now will one day have our Savior personally wipe every tear from our eyes. We cry with the saints now because even in our tears, there's the chance for redemption. And I would argue that it's more prevalent for gospel conversations to happen when the saints are crying rather than when the saints are laughing. That's what Paul's after in these verses of 12 through 18 is rejoice in this. Rejoice even when it gets tough. Rejoice even when it's not going the way we thought it would go. When everything presses in on you, rejoice and keep sharing the gospel because we may be the saints who cry now but our tears will be wiped away and we will enter into a joy that will far surpass any cheap laughter you can have on this earth and that's what paul wants the philippian believers to see and understand and then paul goes on in 19 through 26 to say this yes and i will rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's words in these verses are honest, heartfelt, and raw, and as such, they cut to the deepest level of who we are and who we imagine ourselves to be. This paragraph, read typically draws one of two responses from people today. In the first end, there is this resigned despair that this type of life that Paul talks about, this, I wanna, I'm yearning to go be with Jesus, but I'll stay because it's better for you. We resign this life to those who are only the super saints, as it were. Or the second way this is often responded to is as encouragement for those who currently find themselves in a situation where life and death seem to be hanging in the balance. And so we're left to ask ourselves the question, what about us right now? How do we take these words that seem freighted with so much meaning and so intimidating to how we normally approach our day-to-day life of faith? How do we take them and apply them now to our life? I think there are two ways we can work through these verses and allow them to have an impact on us here and now. The first one is this. Paul says this in 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Think if we're going to take verses 19 through 26 and apply them to our life today, the first place we start is by following Paul's example and confessing our need to others for their prayers and for the Spirit's help through those prayers to continue working to grow us in our Christ-likeness so that we can honor Christ in our bodies, whether by life or by death, knowing that in the end it is all gain for us. We love Philippians 1.21 so much. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But I don't think that that shows up in this letter unless Paul asks for their prayers first. He doesn't ask for the Spirit's help through their prayers to conform and continue conforming the character of Christ in him so that he could say, whatever happens, happens. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And so if we're going to take Paul's words and see them applied to our life, I don't need you to stand up and tell me that you fully are committed to 121 right now. Because I'm probably not there. I want to say I am, but I'm probably not. Where we all need to start is by getting around other believers and saying, would you pray for me that I would remain faithful to the end of my life 
in my confession and witness to the gospel. That's what Paul's asking. That's what Paul's asking believers who feel like they're losing their own grip on their ability to be faithful Christian witnesses. These are the people he goes to and says, would you pray for me? Look, Paul needed the prayers of other believers. And Paul needed the prayers of other believers that we would not put on the same level as Paul. I think the challenge for us is that so many times, unlike Paul, we feel like we arrive at a place where we are ashamed to ask other believers to pray for our ongoing growth and sanctification in the gospel. We will always ask for prayer for jobs and for housing and for what other, whatever other material provisions we need. We will ask for prayers for healing. We will ask for other things in prayer. But it is so rare that as believers we're consistently asking others to pray for us that the character of Christ would be formed in us. So we follow Paul's example and we ask, look, this is why we as a church value small groups. That's why we meet in small groups. It's because we want you to leave here and go either on Wednesday night or Thursday night and sit in a smaller room with a handful of people that you could get to know really well and that would know you and you would know them and know their strengths and their weaknesses, know where they're vulnerable and where they're making great strides in their growth in the gospel. And the goal is not just to share a meal together, and the goal is not just to have a Bible study to recap the sermon. The goal is to figure out how to specifically pray for each other so that the Spirit would do what only the Spirit of God can do, which is grow us into mature believers. And that's why we want you meeting one-on-one or in a group of three outside of even small groups where you're able to drill down deeper into your heart and into your life to expose all of your weaknesses to those who would be committed to praying for you. Not holding it against you, not judging you, but lovingly and faithfully praying for you that you would grow in Christ-likeness so that whatever would come, so that in your body, Christ would be honored, whether by life or by death. And the second way I think we take these words and see them applied to our life in the everyday is this. We allow Paul's words to help serve as a guide for how we choose between what we desire spiritually and what is spiritually necessary. Paul says this, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul talks openly about what his desire is and he immediately follows it up with what is most necessary for the Philippian believers to continue growing and developing in their faith. If we're honest tonight or maybe later, this is where we can baptize a lot of our selfishness. Because we can always choose what we spiritually desire and cut off anybody's ability to question the heart motive behind it. 
And we can live our whole life only ever doing what we spiritually desire and never doing what is spiritually necessary. Because Paul says, my desire, my desire is to be with Christ. And he immediately follows up and says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. How many times in the past week has there been an opportunity to do what was spiritually necessary and you let what you desired spiritually override what you needed to do out of necessity? It just feels so natural, and we need those times to do the things that we spiritually desire. I'm not saying never do the things that you spiritually desire. Like, if you wake up in the morning and you've got a strong spiritual desire to read your Bible, please read your Bible. But if your phone rings and it's a friend who you know is going through a tough time, answer the phone. Do what's spiritually necessary and pick the phone up and talk to them. If you're reading your Bible because you have a spiritual desire for it and your kids start crying, go parent your kids. It's spiritually necessary for you to go parent your kids. We're so, so, so good at this that it is terrifying to examine your life in light of always doing what you spiritually desire and never doing what is spiritually necessary. Because here's the thing. Often what we spiritually desire, often what we spiritually desire is really close, really close to just being really selfish. Spiritual necessity says, I don't care in the moment about my desire because there's something more necessary to be done. And I don't know what that looks like for you in your life, but that is something we have to wrestle with. We cannot be those who continually baptize our selfishness by choosing what we spiritually desire rather than denying ourselves and doing what is spiritually necessary. And Paul didn't hedge his bets. Paul fully believed that the best course of action for the Philippian believers was that he would be delivered from prison and physically returned to them to continue to minister to them and build them up in the gospel. Now he didn't, but he thought that's what would happen. He was willing in a moment where he could have sped up his own death and fulfilled his desire to be with christ in a moment he said i'll push all that aside because what's far better for you is that i would come and continue to minister to you and why does he do it for your progress and joy in the faith the next time it appears that there's a spiritual necessity that's going to override your spiritual desire remind yourself that it's probably for the progress and joy in the faith of a fellow believer and what feels like an intrusion on your time will become a moment 
for the Lord may use you in ways you can't begin to imagine now. There's a movie that came out a few years ago, Hacksaw Ridge, a biographical film about the life of Desmond T. Doss, a pacifist who saved 75 men in the Battle of Okinawa without firing a shot. He would not hold a gun. He would not pick up a gun. He was a medic who risked his life to run out into the field to drag those who were wounded back to safety and lower them down the ridge so that they could receive care and save their life. And the climactic scenes of the movie, Doss runs in and out, in and out, in and out, dodging fire and diving behind rocks to preserve himself so that he could keep bringing men out to safety. And as he brings them to safety and he gets ready to head out, over and over again, he he repeats the phrase, help me get one more. Help me get one more. Doss's desire probably was to live. I'm just assuming as a normal human being in that situation, his desire was to live. But what was necessary was to go back and bring men to safety by himself. What he desired was his own safety, but what was necessary was the rescue of 75 men who would have otherwise died. And that's what Paul's encouraging the Philippian believers to and us to when he says, I desire to be with Christ, but it's more necessary to be with you. He's asking us and inviting us to say, help us, help me, Father, see one more come to faith by doing what is spiritually necessary. Help me put aside even my good spiritual desires to do those things that are spiritually necessary. So what would it look like for us both individually and corporately if we begin to ask God to honor our work and give us the privilege of seeing just one more be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ? As we consider Paul's words, I just wrote these kind of four statements down in conclusion. I hope they'll be true of us. I hope you'll go back and read this this week and be challenged by it. These are things I hope will be true of Restoration Church, have been true, and will be true from here forward. That we desire to be a church that joins with Paul, the Philippians, and each church down through the age who have rejoiced in the spread of the gospel, even through the difficulties and besetting sins of this fallen world. We desire to be a church that is unashamed in asking each other for prayer for our ongoing growth in Christ-like character, trusting that the Spirit will be our helper as we navigate this life until we are finally and fully delivered. We desire to be a church that can discern when to put aside that which we spiritually desire so that we can do that which is spiritually necessary. So fellow believers can continue growing in their faith finding an ever-increasing joy in Jesus, and we would get the chance to rejoice in those who put their faith in Christ for the first time. And lastly, we desire to be a church. If we pray and believe and see these things happen, then I believe we will be a church who can confidently say with Paul that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray.